Welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm David Tate, and this is part 26 in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we finally wrapped up Matthew chapter 7, which brought us to the conclusion of our discussion on the Sermon on the Mount. And with that, we've actually now finally finished, after this long time studying it, we finally finished the very first big subsection of the Gospel of Matthew. Because if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks and months as we've been going through this series, um, I've stated multiple times that really the primary body of the Gospel of Matthew seems to be structured in a series of five narratives and discourses. And Matthew chapters 1 through 7 is the first of those subsections, right? So Matthew chapters 1 through 4 is the narrative section, and then chapters 5 through 7 is the discourse section, right? Chapters 1 through 4, I call that the authentication of the king, because Matthew's primary goal there was to really demonstrate that Jesus had a right to the throne over Israel, right? The right to the messianic title. And then Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the discourse, I called the authority of the king, because this is basically where Jesus goes up on a mountain, he delivers the Sermon on the Mount, and with that, he demonstrates his kingdom manifesto, right? He says, this is how my kingdom is going to look. This is what I'm going to do as king. That now leads us into this second section, which begins with Matthew chapter 8, which takes us back to narrative, right? So we've been in narrative, we went to discourse, now we're back in narrative again, and this kicks off a whole new section, which is also going to be, um, they're going to have several sub-subsections, I guess you could say, uh, because this narrative section that we find here actually is further separated into other sections, what we're going to see is we're going to see three miracle stories followed by a call to discipleship, then three miracle stories followed by a call to discipleship, and then three more miracle stories followed by yet another call to discipleship, right? And that's going to be basically the structure of this narrative discourse, which we see over the course of Matthew chapters eight and nine, right? So this narrative section is a lot shorter than the first one. Uh, it's not four chapters, it's just two chapters long. And the one we're going, the stuff we're going to talk about today is the first sub-subsection, right? Today we are going to talk about the miracles of healing. But before we actually jump into this section, what I really want to do is I want you to just kind of understand the big picture of this subsection as a whole, right? This whole narrative section. Uh, and basically, there's going to be a flow to this, right? And if you understand the flow of it, we're going to be able to go through this a lot quicker. And basically, this is how Matthew kind of structures it. There's going to be three cycles of uh, miracle sections followed by calls to discipleship. And it's going to go like this. There's going to be miracle story number one, followed by miracle story number two followed by miracle story number three, followed by an overall description of Jesus' ministry. And then lastly, there's going to be a call to discipleship, right? And that's kind of going to be the cycle over the course of the next two chapters, right? Miracle, 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 description of ministry, call to discipleship. Today, we're going to cover the first of those cycles, which I am kind of calling the miracles of healing, right? Because there's going to be certain things that tie these miracles together. Cycle one is miracles of healing. Cycle two is miracles of authority, and then cycle three is going to be miracles of restoration. Another thing that we're going to see Matthew doing over the course of the section, and I'm highlighting it now mainly so you can be watching for it as you're reading through this, is that Matthew is going to demonstrate the gradual increase in opposition that Jesus faces as he expands his ministry, right? So in the stuff that we're going to see today, we're not going to see any opposition from the Jewish leaders in regards to Jesus, right? In the first cycle, there is no opposition. However, once we get to that second cycle, there's going to be some opposition that starts showing up and people are going to start being frustrated with some of the stuff that Jesus is doing. And then by the time you get to the third cycle, 
people are just going to be outright rejecting Jesus and they're going to be accusing him of performing these miracles in the power according to the power of demons, right? And so what Matthew's doing here is he's showing basically um, this gradual handoff, right? Uh, because if you really think about it, the big question facing this section, given what we just saw in the Sermon on the Mount, is does Jesus have actions that will back up his words, right? Because as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was proclaiming some very, very, very authoritative things, right? He was claiming to be the supreme authority over all things. Like by the end of the sermon, he is literally speaking kind of like God, where he is saying, you know what, guys? I'm the one who decides whether or not you make it into the kingdom, right? If you build your life upon my words, you'll be good. If you don't build your life on my words, you will be doomed, right? Jesus is speaking very authoritatively. And the way that the whole section ends in Matthew chapter 7 is that the crowds are astonished by Jesus's authority because he's not teaching like one of their scribes. He is teaching authoritatively. And so going into this section, the main question that Matthew is trying to address is, can Jesus back up that authority with his actions, right? Is he all talk or can he back it up? And as we're going to see in these miracles, he does have the power to back it up. But as we're going to see, that power is going to make the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day envious, right? And so they're going to start clashing with him because as he rises in prominence, they're going to become jealous and they're going to begin to reject him and push back. And unfortunately, what we're going to see over the course of Matthew's story is that the Jewish people at this time period are going to choose the wide path and they're going to choose the wide gate and they're going to choose to reject Jesus and they're going to choose to be the foolish person who builds their house on sand so that when the rain and the wind comes, they're going to be demolished. And that's ultimately where Matthew is heading with this whole story to where by the time you get to the end of the gospel, Jesus is going to stand on the Mount of Olives and he is going to proclaim that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because Israel has rejected their king, right? So that's ultimately the whole trajectory. And we begin to see that pushback in these sections coming up right here, right? So there's these uh, three cycles of three miracle stories each. That being said, even though there are three miracle stories in each section, there's actually 10 miracles performed overall. And we're going to see that specifically in the third cycle, there's actually two miracles that are wedged in to one miracle story. Uh, and so it's, this seems like it's not accidental, right? Uh, if you know anything about how Hebrew people write stuff, numbers are never accidental. Uh, and one thing that we've really been tracking as we're going through this, and once again, be patient, don't worry, we're going to get to the biblical text in just a second. Just be patient with me. Um, one thing that we've really been tracking throughout this whole study uh, is how Matthew is specifically choosing to frame Jesus' story in such a way so that Jesus' life mimics the history of the people of Israel, right? And Matthew's not forcing this, but Matthew is selectively sharing this to where a lot of scholars and a lot of people have just noticed there are definite parallels. And it definitely seems intentional by, intentional by Matthew that the details that he is sharing would immediately call to mind in the mind of his Jewish readers the history of Israel, and Jesus is succeeding where people, uh, where Israel failed, right? Uh, and so whenever you hear the number 10 here, uh, specifically where we've left off in the whole history of Israel, uh, there are two different things that would probably come to mind. On one end, there's the 10 plagues of Egypt, and on the other end, there's the 10 rebellions of the people of Israel in the wilderness, right? Those are two big, important 10 numbers uh, that you see at this point in the story, 
Because if you've been tracking with us for this whole series, that's kind of where we're at in the history of Israel by the time you get to the end of Matthew chapter 7, right? We just got out of Egypt, right? So we just had that Exodus event, and we're now going into the wilderness. And so all of that story is kind of fair game for what Matthew's trying to accomplish right here. And that's what many scholars have pointed out, right? And so whenever we're looking at these nine miracle stories, which ultimately tell ten miracles... Um, some scholars have seen parallels with either the 10 plagues in Egypt or the 10 rebellions that you see in the wilderness. And so I just kind of wanted to highlight that real quick just to get your mind thinking. We're not going to spend a lot of time delving into it right now, but I just did want to highlight um, kind of the thought process, right? So some have seen a connection with the 10 plagues in Egypt, in which case Jesus is the greater Moses bringing miracles of revival rather than destruction, right? So there's a contrast there where Moses went in and he performed miracles that destroyed Egypt. Jesus coming in and he's um, providing miracles and producing miracles that revive the nation. And he is bringing the true Israel out of the new Egypt that Israel has become. Right? That's been a big theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that Israel itself, like the nation of Israel, has become the new Egypt, who is enslaving itself. Right, And so Jesus shows up, and he starts waging war on the new Egypt, Israel, uh, and he does this by performing these miracles in order to draw the true Israel out of the new Egypt. Right, So that's one way that you could look at it if you're viewing these as parallel to the ten plagues. On the other hand, though, you could view this as parallel to the ten rebellions of the people of Israel when they were out in the wilderness, in which case Jesus is being presented as the true Israel who comes into the wilderness of this world, which is something that we see in the Gospel of Matthew. He comes into the wilderness of this world uh, and he is drawing Israel to God rather than away from him, right? Uh, whereas the original Israel, they went out into the wilderness and that was their opportunity where they just decided to rebel against God and grumble against him. Well, Jesus is reversing that right? Uh, and so you really do have these two nice parallels that you could compare this to. And I'd probably argue that, you know what? Matthew might have both in mind because both are legitimate things that Jesus is accomplishing. Uh, and so, you know what? I don't know. I'm not going to really pick one or the other. I think that Matthew might have both in mind and I don't feel um, comfortable enough on either one to really just like choose one definitively. Uh, but ultimately, I just like to put these thoughts in your mind so you can be thinking of it as we go through it. Um, you obviously don't want to um, read too much into a lot of this stuff because some people will go down that route um, and they'll just start viewing, like they'll try to force connections. I don't want to force connections, right? Uh, basically what I do is whenever somebody highlights a connection, I just look deeper into it to see if there's other scholars and other um, pastors, and other people who have started noticing these connections. And if there's enough of them who have noticed them, then I'll probably highlight it just because uh, it means that I'm not just making stuff up right here, right? But I do like to highlight stuff like that just so you can be thinking about it. That being said, we have spent way too long on introduction stuff here. Uh, what do you say we actually hop into the text? Okay, so our text is going to pick up immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. Like, and I, when I say immediately, I mean immediately. Jesus is going to be coming down the mountain. And we arrive at our first miracle story right here. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and was bowing down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, so here we have the very first miracle 
um, that Matthew explicitly details, right? Um, there have been other miracles that he mentioned. Uh, we saw this at the end of Matthew chapter 4, where he mentions that Jesus is going around performing miracles. But right here, we actually get to see a miracle performed, and it is a miracle performed on a leprous man. And there's really two things that I want to highlight here that really just stick out to me. Uh, and it really is about, obviously, the interaction between Jesus and the leprous man. The first thing that I want to highlight is that the leprous man comes to Jesus. I think that's very interesting that the leprous man comes to Jesus. But then another thing that highlight stands out to me is the fact that Jesus touched the leprous man. Uh, and in order for you to really understand why both of those things are surprising, maybe what I should do is I should read from Leviticus real quick. Because keep in mind, um, Matthew's original audience was Jewish. Right? And Matthew's Jewish audience would have been a lot more in tune with the Old Testament scriptures than a lot of people are nowadays. Um, but this is what we read about in regards to leprosy if you go to Leviticus chapter 22. No man of the seed of Aaron, who is a leper or who has a discharge, may eat of the holy gifts until he is clean. And if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or if a man has a seminal emission, or if a man touches any teeming things by which is, he is made unclean or any man or whom he is, uh, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness, a person who touches any such thing shall be unclean until evening, and shall not eat of the holy gifts unless he has bathed his body in living uh, his body in water. So um, that's just one example of instructions given in regards to leprosy. But the main thing I want to highlight there is that a leprous person is not supposed to touch anything holy, right? Um, basically, if you know anything about leprosy and how it was treated in Jewish communities, uh, it was basically like it was like the nasty, ooey gooey stuff that you just want to stay away from. And if somebody saw a leprous person, they would stay away. Right. This was like the original um, <laughs> social distancing. Right. Whenever you were around a leprous person, you did not get close to them. Many times Jewish people wouldn't even look in the direction of a leprous person. Right. They stayed so far away. And a leprous person was excommunicated from like the whole congregation until they were better. Well, this is really bad if the leprosy is an ongoing thing from which they cannot be healed, right? And it seems like this is the situation that this guy finds himself in here. But I want you to notice it goes both ways. Not only did people avoid leprous people, but the lepers, they couldn't approach anything holy because by approaching a holy thing, they made it unclean. That's why it's so surprising to me that the leprous man approaches Jesus he recognizes that Jesus is holy, yet he still chooses to approach Jesus because he seems to believe that Jesus' holiness is something that can handle him. I just think that's really cool. So we read that now when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, right? And so this whole Sermon on the Mount thing apparently just helped Jesus skyrocket into further popularity. And behold, uh, I always like whenever the word behold shows up in there um, because this is where Matthew's writing in a very um, Hebrew way. Uh, to where, like, in Hebrew, basically, like, this is the way that the um, the author invites you to see things from his perspective. And behold, a leper came to him and was bowing down before him, right? So you can imagine this guy, this sickly guy, this person who's been excommunicated from everyone that he knows and loves, this living embodiment of, like, living death and walking disease. He comes before Jesus, he bows down before, he bows down before him and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He's just confident. Right? He doesn't explain why he believes this about Jesus. And he doesn't even suggest that Jesus needs to ask God for permission. He simply says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What he's doing is he is acknowledging 
the authority of Jesus, the authority that Jesus was literally talking about in the previous verses in Matthew chapter 7. Right? Jesus is saying that he has this authority. Everybody was marveling at Jesus' authority. Jesus comes down the mountain and this leper comes to him and acknowledges that authority. If you will, you can make me clean. If you go back to the Old Testament, whenever people perform miracles, it is always a thus says the Lord situation, right? God is the one who gives them the ability to do that. This guy says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus has that authority. And notice that Jesus doesn't correct him. Instead, Jesus stretches out his hand and he touches him. I wonder how long it had been since this man had been touched. It's just, it's such an intimate thing, right? Jesus didn't have to do this, but he did. We're going to see that he didn't have to do it in the next passage, right? Jesus does not have to touch people in order to heal them, but he reached out and he sent a clear message by touching this person who nobody else would even look at. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. It's all about the will, right? Jesus is willing and therefore he is cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Right, so if you go back to the law, I'm not going to read it right now, but if you go back to the law, basically Moses gives stipulations for how to go about becoming clean and being reintroduced into society once you've been cleansed of leprosy, right? And that's what Jesus tells him to do, right? Okay, you've been healed, you're good, go back, go to the priest, give your offering and be restored, right? This is what Jesus does. But there is one thing that he mentions there. He says, see that you tell no one, right? On one end, maybe Jesus is telling him this because he wants it to he wants the man to make it his number one priority to just get back into community, right? So don't let anybody slow you down. But I'd argue that this is um, that Jesus has something a little bit more in mind here, right? Jesus doesn't want the man to go around telling everybody because Jesus recognizes that if word about him spreads too quickly, well, ultimately, the opposition is going to grow against him even quicker as well. Right? And so Jesus, what we're going to see, and we see this in all the Gospels, is that he's biding his time. right? Because Jesus knows that he does not have long. And once everybody's eyes are on him, very quickly people are going to turn against him and kill him. And so Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Just go and be restored into community. right? And so that right there, there's so much more you could talk about here, but we're just going to kind of move on so that we can move into the rest of this. That right there is the first miracle that Matthew chooses to share. right? It's a beautiful portrait of just our Savior coming in and just meeting this person who had been excommunicated by everybody else. And Jesus walks up to this person who is literally an embodiment of living death. And he stretches out his hand and puts his hand on him. And he says, be clean. And he restores this man to life, right? The person was not literally dead, but his disease made him no better than a dead person, right? He was dead to everybody else because nobody would even associate with him. But by the end of the story, not only do we see that the man has been restored to perfect health, but he is actually being sent to go and be reintroduced into society. A beautiful portrait. But if you really want a beautiful portrait, let's go to the next story, because this is where things get crazy. Verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my slave do this and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, 
I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the, and the servant was healed that very moment. All right. Now, if the last story was cool, I would argue that this story is even cooler. Like, okay, so just the progression here, right? Jesus was up on the mountain, and then when he comes down from the mountain, he meets the leper. Now he's back in Capernaum, right? We don't know if this is the same day. We don't know if this is the next day. We just know that this is as he's entering Capernaum, presumably after having returned from the Sermon on the Mount. He comes back to Capernaum, his new home base, and we see that a centurion came to him. Once again, notice that the people are the ones flocking to Jesus because he's growing in popularity, right? Jesus is no longer having to go out to others to heal them. They're coming to him. A leper came to him, and now a centurion comes to him. Both of these are very unlikely, and I think that's what Matthew's trying to highlight, right? The people who are coming to Jesus are not the people you'd expect, right? On one hand, you have a leper, a living embodiment of sickness and death, and then now you have a centurion, a Gentile oppressor who people would have viewed as an occupying oppressor, right? That's what people would have viewed the centurion as, right? He's a Gentile and therefore he's unclean, but he's also a Roman soldier, right? This is not who people would typically look to as perfect citizens in the kingdom of God, right? They have their ideals, but now we see that those are the people who are coming, like, like it, it's breaking the mold. That's what I'm trying to communicate, right? We don't see Pharisees coming to Jesus. We don't see scribes coming to Jesus. We don't see devout followers of God coming to Jesus. We see a leper, somebody who had been excommunicated from society. And not, not excommunicated in a bad way. It was according to the law, keep in mind. But it was somebody who represented death. And then you have a Gentile soldier, somebody who represents the oppression coming to Jesus. What Matthew's trying to plant in your heart as the reader is he's trying to highlight that the kingdom of God might not look how you'd expect, right? And so this guy, he's a Gentile. People would have viewed him as unclean but they also would have viewed him as an enemy occupier, right? Most people would not interact with such a person unless they had to. Jesus just receives him. But notice that this guy doesn't come to Jesus um, in this voice of authority where he's making Jesus do anything. Instead, it's a very humble portrait we get. A centurion came to him pleading with him. He's pleading with Jesus. Imagine this picture, this Roman soldier, this occupying force, this person who normally would be feared by the people. He comes and he's pleading with Jesus. Once again, it's because he recognizes that Jesus has authority. It directly flows from what we saw in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. He's pleading with him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. I love this too, because think about how much this humanizes the centurion. Right? Whenever you think about how the Jewish people viewed the Romans at this time period, do you think many of them were viewing Roman centurions as people who cared deeply about their servants? Probably not. Right? Whenever we look at the bad guys and whenever we villainize people, we very rarely think of them as people who have hearts and who care for somebody else. But Matthew introduces us to this centurion and he's not shed under a negative light. Instead, he is shed under a positive light, a much more positive light than some of the Jews are going to be shed. This guy shows up to Jesus and first thing he does is call him Lord. 
And then he voices his concern, not for his best friend, not for his wife, not for his child, but for his servant. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented, right? This soldier is so thrown off by the suffering of his servant that he comes to Jesus and begins to plead on his behalf. And so Jesus responds and says, okay, fine, um, I'll come and heal him. But that's not enough for the centurion, right? He says, Lord, I'm not good enough for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now this is crazy, right? Like this right here, like the amount of faith that this guy has, right? This is stuff we take for granted because we know who Jesus is, right? Maybe just use your sanctified imagination real quick. Go back 2000 years. Imagine that you are a person living at this time period. You are a Roman soldier walking up to a Jewish man who looks like any other Jewish man. And you're asking him to heal your servant. And the guy literally responds to you and says, sure, I'll get up and I'll come with you, right? And you say, no, do it from here because I believe you can. Like, this is crazy, right? How does this guy know that Jesus has this power? Like, he, the only reason is because of faith, right? He has, apparently, we don't know this guy's backstory. We don't know how he knows as much about Jesus. All we know is that from what he has seen about Jesus, he has been led to believe and he has been inclined to believe that Jesus has so much authority that he doesn't have to be like a doctor who goes to see the patient to heal him. Instead, he says, I'm not worthy for you to come with me. You misunderstood my request. Whenever I asked for you to heal my servant, I was not asking for you to join me in the journey back. I was simply asking you to heal him from here because I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Right? Like this centurion dude, this big soldier, this guy who would have been viewed as the enemy, he is coming and he is posturing himself in humility at the feet of this Jewish rabbi this random guy from Nazareth. This is amazing what this guy is doing here. I'm not good enough for you to come under my roof. Imagine that. That's crazy. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, that's all I want. I don't want to inconvenience you. I don't want to waste your time. You could journey with me all the way here, but I know you don't need to. I simply want you to say the word. And then the guy begins to explain his reasoning. He says, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Right? So he basically says, all right, well, I know what it's like to be under authority to somebody else. Right? The soldier, he's a centurion. He had somebody in charge of him, a commanding officer. And ultimately, you could follow the ranks all the way up till you get to the emperor. Right? This guy is a dude who's under authority, who can, and the people in authority over him, they tell him to do things and he goes and does them. Right? He is in obedience. He walks in obedience to the will of the people above him. But in the same way, he also has soldiers underneath him. Right? And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it, right? So the centurion explains, I'm a man under authority, and I'm a man in authority, right? I've got people under me, I tell them what to do, and they go do it. I am under other people, other people tell me what to do, and I go do it. But there's one thing the centurion cannot do. He cannot heal. He does not have the ability to do that. He needs to go to somebody who has greater authority than he does. And so he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you simply speak from right here, I believe that my servant over there will be healed. That's kind of crazy because ultimately, and I'm not saying he's actually crazy. I'm saying these are crazy implications here because ultimately what he's communicating to Jesus is that Jesus is also a person under authority, 
but whatever authority Jesus is under is an authority that is way more powerful than the emperor, right? Because this guy says, no, I've got, like, I'm under authority. I know what it's like to be under authority, but I can't heal anybody like this, right? I have other people under my authority and I can tell my servant to go do this and they'll go do that, but I can't heal somebody from the spot. You, however, Jesus, you can do that. Because the authority that you are under and the authority that you possess is way greater than anything that Rome could offer. This dude is asserting that Jesus has authority. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Yeah, I'd say this is amazing stuff, right? Jesus himself is marveling at this. Right, Jesus looks at this Roman soldier before him and he's like, mind blown. The fact that this guy has such tremendous faith testifies to the fact that this guy gets it. Right? I mean, I mean, I wonder what Caesar would think about this centurion doing this. Right? You have this soldier kneeling before and coming before some Jewish rabbi and prostrating himself and saying, You have authority to speak things into existence, to where literally from a distance, like he's not telling him the servant's name, he's not telling him anything about it. He simply says, My servant. And he assumes that Jesus has the knowledge to not only know who that servant is, but to speak something that can then go over space and time, find that servant, and heal him. Right? If you just stop to think about the implications, no wonder Jesus marvels at this, right? He's not, like, 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 this is just crazy stuff. And so Jesus says, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. But then notice what he says next. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This right here, these words are going to give birth to the opposition against Jesus. Because here you have a Gentile centurion who's kneeling before Jesus, and Jesus looks and says, the faith in this Gentile is greater than any faith I've seen in Israel. And then from saying that, he concludes that there are many who will come from east and west, right? From the nations, from the Gentiles. There are many who will come from the Gentiles and they're going to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, right? So there are going to be a lot of Gentiles who end up in the kingdom of heaven. But then notice what he says next. But the sons of the kingdom, the people of Israel, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. And that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Peter Lightheart says, if you want to know why the Jews began to oppose and hate Jesus, you can see it here. And I agree with him. This is one of the fundamental themes and one of the central themes of Matthew's gospel. The Jewish people unto whom Jesus came are going to reject him. The Gentiles are going to receive him. And this is theology that traces way back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. All you got to do is read it. This is what God promised was going to happen. And that's what Jesus is predicting right here. But God also promised that whenever this did happen, the Jewish people would not understand it. Right? And that their eyes are going to be blinded to it and their hearts are going to be hardened. And they're not going to be understand they're not going to be able to understand the depths of God. But Jesus is saying right here, there are going to be a bunch of Gentiles who end up at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's going to be a lot of people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are not going to end up in the kingdom. That's scary. And that's why the Jewish people are going to respond so like angrily and violently against Jesus. 
because they do not like what he is teaching here. But what he's saying is exactly what he's seeing, right? There's a Gentile who understands who he is more than anybody in Israel, right? You have this Roman centurion kneeling before him and saying, you don't even have to come with me. All you have to do is speak a word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus sees this and he says, this is exactly what God promised in the scriptures. There's going to be Gentiles in the kingdom and there's going to be a lot of Jews who don't make it in. And those Jews are going to think they're making it in. And those Gentiles, man, they're going to really surprise them. Verse 13, And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. Once again, it's all rooted in faith. By what Jesus is saying there in verses 11 and 12, I don't want you to miss this. The Jewish people would have in many ways viewed him as a traitor. Right? He is siding with the Romans. Right? That's not how Jesus would have viewed it, right? Jesus would not have viewed this as him picking sides. The only side he is on is God's side. And if you're not with him, you're against him, right? But that's how the Jewish people would have viewed it. Here you have a Roman centurion coming up to him. The Jewish people would have probably preferred for him to either spit in the Roman's face or to call his people to arms so they could wage war on the Romans. But instead, Jesus helps him and he praises him. And he says, I haven't seen anybody with this faith, not even in Israel. Jesus would have been viewed as a traitor here. But instead, he says, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. I love how understated the actual miracle itself is, right? It's the theology behind the miracle that is accentuated in the gospel, uh, whereas Matthew just takes it for granted that the centurion was right. Yeah, the servant was healed that very moment. Let's move on. <laughs> I just love that that's like how Matthew tells the story, right? There's not like um, some of the other gospels, whenever you read this story or a story very similar to it, um, you actually have it to where like the centurion's going home and then he meets with the servants and stuff like that. Not in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, he's like, oh yeah, well, of course he was healed, right? Uh, because Matthew's already established Jesus has this authority. He's just backing it up with what Jesus is doing. That leads us into our third miracle story, our final miracle story for today, which will then lead us into the summary of Jesus' ministry, followed by the calls to discipleship. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began waiting on him. Now when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill, in order to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Um, so right here, um, this is the last little miracle we have here, verses 14 and 15. Uh, and it's a nice little sweet miracle, right? It has to do with Peter's mother-in-law. We met Peter before. Um, Peter was back in, um, I think he was mentioned in Matthew chapter 4, I believe. That's whenever Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be his disciples. Uh, yeah, this is Simon Peter, right? Uh, and basically, um, we still are following Jesus, right? So he came down from the mountain and he saw the leper. And then he got to Capernaum, and when he got to Capernaum, he encountered the centurion. Uh, and then now that, they're, now that they're in Capernaum, they get to Peter's home, right? Uh, and whenever they get to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. Uh, this lets us know a few things about Peter. Uh, Peter was apparently married, because you have to be married in order to have a mother-in-law, right? Uh, and apparently the mother-in-law was so sick that she was living with them at their home. And uh, she is sick in bed with a fever, right? Things are not going well. Uh, but Jesus, what does he do? He goes and he touches her hand, right? So this is the one story where, once again, the person did not come to Jesus, but that's because she's bedridden, right? She literally could not come to Jesus. So here Jesus does come to her, but also kind of like the story with the leper, he touches her. 
He touches her hand, and the fever left her. And immediately, what does she do? She gets up and begins waiting on him. I just think that's great, right? She gets up, and I guess out of gratitude, she immediately just starts serving the one who just restored life to her, right? That's just a beautiful portrait. And once again, when I say restored life, I'm not saying resurrected. I'm talking about restored, like, juvenation, right? Like, she's actually able to function. She's no longer bedridden. Her fever is gone. Um, this is really cool, right? So this last story, uh, once again, it's not, it's not accentuated as much as the other ones, right? There's not as much theology built behind it, but it does serve to show that this is just what Jesus did, right? Jesus is like the rivers of living water flowing down from Eden, right? Everywhere he goes, life is being produced. He literally comes from the mountain and as he goes from the mountain, he comes down and he encounters a leper and he heals them. And then he flows down from the bottom of the mountain all the way to Capernaum. And he encounters a Roman centurion and heals that um, person's servant as well. And then he flows from Capernaum into Peter's house and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. So here we've been following Jesus on this trajectory, just coming and returning back home uh, from his sermon. And on that whole way home, he's just healing people along the way. It's a really beautiful portrait. Which then leads us to verses 16 and 17, where Matthew basically gives us a summary of Jesus' ministry at this time period, right? That's kind of the structure, once again. Three miracle stories, summary, then call to discipleship. This is the summary. Now when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill, right? Uh, so basically, we just get to see that this is just what Jesus did, right? Whenever evening came, he's apparently staying at Peter's house, and he's the talk of the town, right? He just preached this amazing sermon. He performed three miracles on the way back home. He gets there and now everybody's just bustling up to the house and bringing to him all the sick, all the demon possessed, all the ill, and he's just healing them, right? He's casting out all the evil spirits with a word from his mouth, right? Once again, demonstrating that he has the authority to back up the things that he taught in the sermon. But Matthew says that that's not all he's doing here, right? He's not simply demonstrating his authority. Rather, he's fulfilling prophecy, he says that Jesus did this in order to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Uh, this is a quote from Isaiah 53, the passage that you're probably most associated as being uh, about the suffering servant, right? The one who bore our sorrows. Uh, later on in the New Testament, this same verse is going to be quoted, but rather than applying it to Jesus' healing ministry during his lifetime, it's going to apply, uh, it's going to be applied to what Jesus did whenever he bore our sins on the cross. Right? But right here, we see Matthew's applying this fairly literally. Right, He himself literally took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Whenever Jesus went to the leprous person, he took away the leprosy. Right, Whenever he went to this centurion, um, he took away the servant sickness, right, the paralysis. Whenever he goes to Peter's mother-in-law, he takes away her fever. He's literally taking away these things and he's carrying the diseases on himself. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus became leprous or he became paralyzed or he became feverish. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm saying that he's carrying them away in him. Jesus is kind of functioning like the temple where people would go to offer their sacrifices to atone for sin. And the temple would be the thing that, um, you know, it, it, it would it would carry the sins, right? Well, now Jesus is the one carrying the diseases, right? Uh, it's just a beautiful portrait of what Jesus is actually accomplishing, right? He's planting life everywhere he goes. He is a river of living water. Where he goes, life follows, right? That's the portrait that Matthew is painting of Jesus during all of this. And it's a beautiful, beautiful portrait. 
Which then leads us to the end of this section uh, where Matthew does give us our little call to discipleship here, right? Uh, This is what we read. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. So here we get to see what I would say is the cost of discipleship. Uh, We get to see uh, two primary things that Jesus is teaching. The first one, uh, there's two different interactions here, right? The first interaction teaches us that disciples must be prepared for an uncomfortable life. And then I think the second interaction teaches us that disciples must be willing to make Jesus their priority, right? Their number one priority, their only priority, right? That's what is ultimately being communicated here. And both of those, um, they have high demands, right? And so let's look at this real quickly and then we'll wrap this up. So when Jesus saw a crowd around him, right, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Is this the same night that we just read that other stuff? I'm assuming not. I'm assuming this is probably like the next day or a few days later or something like that. At some point, Jesus sees a crowd around him and he decides to depart to the other side of the sea. Could be the same night. I don't know. Uh, But that's setting up the events that are going to come in next week's stuff. They get up. They're going to the other side of the sea. But as they're making their way to the boat, some interactions happen. Right? Because once again, throughout all of this, Jesus has been gathering disciples. Jesus is growing in popularity. And so there's been some people who are following Jesus and they're wanting to tag along with him. And so a scribe comes up to him. And so interesting. Right? Like just, I, I like highlighting the different people who Jesus is interacting with. Right? We've had him heal a leper. We've had him heal a centurion servant. We've had him heal one of his disciples' mothers. And now finally... We have a scribe come up to Jesus, and this is the person you would probably expect Jesus to react more warmly to because he's a scribe, right? He's a pious guy. He's probably a devout Jew. But notice what how Jesus interacts with him. The scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I mean, most people would jump at the opportunity of this, right? What an amazing compliment, right? You have a scribe coming up, and this guy is saying, you know what, Jesus? I want to follow you wherever you go. I will document all the things you tell me to document. I will follow you. I will learn from you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Most people would say, come on, man, join the party. But Jesus turns to the scribe and says to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Translation, it's not going to be a fun time. It's going to be uncomfortable. Right? And so he tells the scribe, hey, dude, I know I'm growing in popularity, but if you're in this for a popularity contest, go find somebody else to follow. If you're in this for comfort, follow somebody else. We're not going to be staying in fancy mansions. We're not going to be staying in the fancy houses of people like some of the rabbis might do. No. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, I don't have a house. I'm homeless. <laughs> if you want to follow me, be prepared for discomfort. And if you're, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to literally follow me wherever I go, right? Don't jump in this. Basically, he's telling him to count the cost, right? You can follow me, but don't do it if you're wanting an easy life. Don't follow me if you are wanting to live with a pillow under your head every night. Don't follow me if you always want to know where your next meal is coming from. It makes me wonder how many of us would follow Jesus here, right? Uh, we don't actually get to see how this scribe responded, um, so we just ultimately don't know. 
but it makes me wonder how we would respond if we were following Jesus right here and we were the one who asked him this question. He responded this way. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying there's no payment. There's no benefits. Uh, there's no, you know, there's no perks other than you're going to be with me, which I would argue is the biggest perk of all, but I don't know if we would have viewed that that way back then, right? Nowadays, we look back and we're like, oh, yes, I want to be with Jesus. Well, back then, he just looked like a normal rabbi, a normal Jewish guy. It makes me wonder how we would respond. I hope that we'd respond in the right way, but he's just pointing out, hey, don't follow me if you're looking for a life of comfort. Sadly, I think that um, sometimes the main way we motivate people to follow Jesus is by promising them lives of comfort that Jesus does not promise. Um, this is why the prosperity gospel is so dangerous, right? It's because people love hearing stuff like that, but um, it, it's really wiggled our, its way into our doctrines um, in more ways than people are aware, right? Um, the biblical teaching of following Jesus is not anything about comforts in this life. It's all about enduring and persevering for the sake of future reward, right? That That's what following Jesus is supposed to be about, and that's what he's communicating to this guy. So if you're going to follow me wherever you go, you better actually mean it. That's what Jesus is saying. Um, it, it might sound kind of harsh, uh, but believe me, the next thing he's going to say sounds even harsher. Um, Jesus was not concerned with quantity of believers, right? He was not concerned with filling up pews. He wanted quality believers. He wanted people who were there for him and only him. Um I think that's what we should be seeking to produce in our um, churches as well, right? People who are there for Jesus and Jesus alone. Um, whereas sometimes a lot of our churches are too focused on filling up pews. And I think that it's a good desire. We should want the kingdom of God to grow and we should want those pews filled, but we shouldn't sacrifice the genuine call to discipleship, right? Um, if we're going to follow him, we need to be willing to follow him wherever he goes, even if there's nowhere to lay your head. And that's not an easy teaching. Right? It's easy for me to say that whenever I sit here filming YouTube videos and podcasts uh, <laughs> with these lights and an AC and stuff. It's easy for me to say that. I get that. right? But I'm saying we need to be willing to do it. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Uh, this is interesting because this part, um, it doesn't call him a scribe. It calls him a disciple. right? So this is apparently somebody who had been following Jesus for quite some time. Um, but even then, Jesus is going to turn to this guy. And he's still going to give him a harsh teaching. Uh, so the guy says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. What you have to realize is that this guy is probably not suggesting that his father literally just died and he's asking for permission to like go like, you know, just conduct a funeral. Um, if that was what happened, I heavily doubt that that guy would actually be interacting with Jesus right now. He'd probably be at his dad's funeral or he'd probably be organizing the funeral, right? Uh, what this guy is actually asking is probably like what he's suggesting is that his dad is probably old. And his dad is getting closer to the time of death. Uh, and basically, the guy is suggesting, hey, Jesus, I want to follow you. But like, just give me some time real quick, right? Just give me a little while and I'll follow you after dad's dead and after he's buried. Let me just, basically, let me get all my ducks in a row and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Yikes. It's kind of harsh. Um, basically, Jesus is saying, you've got, like, if you're going to follow me, I've got to be your priority right? The dead will bury their own dead, right? It does, like, I mean, in the end, funerals don't matter that much. <laughs> I know that sounds kind of harsh. Um, there might be a slight implication here that Jesus is saying that the man's family belongs under the category of dead, right? 
if there if your family would keep you from following me, then like like this is Jesus talking, right? Um, the idea this is what Jesus is implying. If your family would keep you from following me, then your family is not alive, right? Let the dead bury their own dead. If you want to be alive, follow me now, right? That's kind of the implications there. He's saying, I've got to be your priority. Keep in mind, once again, that's a big old claim, right? I mean, especially if you understand the Jewish culture at this time period and the obligation you have towards your parents, right? I mean, honor your father and your mother, obey your parents, take care of your parents. These are all things that you read of in the law. And Jesus does not want him to break the law. By no means. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to annul them, not to get rid of them. But Jesus is saying, I've got to be the priority. Implication, Jesus is saying that he is more important than your parents. That's a huge claim. It, it's saying that Jesus views himself very highly. And if Jesus really views himself that highly, he is either extremely narcissistic or... He is exactly who he claims to be. I obviously lean towards the latter. Right? I think Jesus is who he claims to be. But these are not easy teachings. Once again, I'm trying to highlight that to you. I'm trying to highlight that none of this stuff is easy teaching. These are very difficult things that Jesus is communicating right here. Right? Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. That seems so harsh. It seems so calloused. But that's what this guy needed to hear. Because this guy was wanting to follow Jesus, but he was wanting to put a pause button on it, right? This is what we do all the time, right? Oh, well, I'll start, you know, taking God seriously once I've sowed my wild oats and once I've had some fun and once I've done this, this, and this, right? There's this inconsequential time. I mean, um, not inconsequential. There's, it's hugely consequential. There's this undefined time frame that we like to establish. And we're like, I'll take Jesus seriously then. I'll start doing that then. And Jesus says, now is the time right? Right now, if you want to follow me, do it now. Don't allow yourself to talk yourself out of it, right? This is like Genesis 24, whenever Abraham's servant is going to retrieve Rebecca as a wife for Isaac, right? And um, Rebecca's family is kind of like, oh, let's give us a few days to just think this over. And Abraham's servant says, no, God has given me success right now. If you will, and if the woman's willing, can we just leave right now? Because I don't want to double back, right? If, if right now, if we are committed, let's commit. Right? That's kind of what Jesus is suggesting right here. If you want to follow me, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Right? You'll have time to worry about that later. And if you don't have time to worry about it, and if you're too focused on following me to worry about it, well, guess what? He'll end up in the ground one way or another. Follow me. Right? These are huge teachings. Right? But that's the whole point of the Gospel of Matthew. There is the first cycle of miracles and calls to discipleship and stuff like that. We'll pick up with this next week whenever we go further into the next section. Uh, I probably won't spend as much time next week, obviously, on introductory stuff, but I thought that it was important for us to kind of have a better picture of where this whole thing was heading before we actually dove into it. And so thank you so much for just hanging in there with me and talking about all this stuff. I hope that you've been enjoying this series as much as I have been enjoying going through it. Um, really, the saddest part to me is just not getting to hear y'all's opinions, right? Y'all just get to listen to me talk over and over again and I get to sit in this room and talk about it um, but I really miss out on just like you know hearing y'all's opinions I really love having discourse on the Bible um, but thank you so much for um, just joining me on this whole journey I hope that you've been enjoying it uh, my name is David Tate this is now let's be honest be sure to keep a smile on your face don't let anybody steal your joy and above all remember who you are and remember who God is and keep loving him Maranatha <laughs>